Welcome to the official podcast for Triumvir Clio's School of Classical Civilization. I'm Beth, a.k.a. Triumvir Clio. Welcome back. Today we will tackle the rest of Hesiod's Theogony. I apologize for the litany of names in the last Theogony episode. There are still a lot of names in what's left, but there's also a bit more action. When we left off, Hesiod was describing the children of the Titans. We had reached Kronos and Rhea, and therefore the birth of the Olympian gods, which seemed like a good place to break. So that's where we'll pick up. You'll recall that Kronos took the lead in the revenge plot against Oranos. He logically decided that this meant he was in charge of the Titans. He and Rhea, his sister, had six children, Hestia, Demeter, Hera, Hades, Poseidon, and Zeus. And beyond the incest, the relationships in the Theogony are cringeworthy. In the translation that I'm using, West writes that Rhea surrendered to Kronos. It's hard to know how consensual any of the relationships are. A lot of them don't sound like they really are. And given how Kronos responds to childbirth, yeah... Kronos doesn't want anyone to be greater than he is, and he remembers what happened with his parents. Duh, he kind of was the one to wield the sickle. He should remember. So as each baby is born, Kronos takes them and swallows them, at least until Rhea is pregnant with Zeus. Now, if we think of this symbolically, the story does make sense. Kronos means time, and time consumes all. But back to the story. Rhea is heartbroken by Kronos' actions, and when she's about to give birth to Zeus, she calls on her parents, Gaia and Uranos, to help her. They tell her to go to Crete, and that is where Zeus is born. Gaia takes the baby and hides him in a cave, which means that Zeus is hidden inside his grandmother. Rhea then shaps, wraps a baby-shaped stone in the swaddling clothes um, and gives that to Kronos. As with the five previous children, Kronos swallows the rock, thinking that it is Zeus. Zeus then grows to adulthood and tricks Kronos into throwing up the stone and the other five children, or adults, because they grew up too while they were in Kronos' stomach. The stone comes back up first because it was swallowed last, and Zeus takes that stone and plants it at Delphi. And yes, if you go to Delphi today, you can see the ancient navel of Zeus inside the museum and a re replica of it outside where it originally stood. Zeus then sets the Cyclops and the Hecatonchires free. They thank him by giving him thunder and lightning and his lightning bolt, and that's why Zeus is now king of the gods. Yes, Hesiod does skip large chunks of this story. Before we go on to the next section, I want to touch on the Kronos-Zeus story. In world religions, we generally see time treated in two ways. It is either linear or it is cyclical. And initially, we see that linear take on time. Uh, Kronos is all-consuming. Time moves forward and nothing can escape it. But then Zeus comes along and suddenly time isn't all-consuming. The rest of the Olympian gods are reborn and we see time as a cycle. We'll take a short break here and come back for the next part of the Theogony. Hesiod may have spent a bit of time telling us a story, but now he's back to the begats. The Titan Iapetus marries Clymene, another of the Oceanids, and their children are Atlas, Menoetius, Prometheus, and Epimetheus. 
Hesiod tells us that Epimetheus was a disaster to men because at that time Zeus gives him a wife, and we covered the rest of that story in Works and Days. Minoetius is struck down by one of Zeus's thunderbolts. Atlas holds up the sky at the ends of the earth near the Hesperides. And Prometheus is bound to a pillar, and an eagle feasts on his liver, which then regrows every night, at least until Heracles kills the eagle and frees Prometheus. Yes, another Heracles story glossed over in this litany of begats. Hesiod tells us that Zeus is okay with Heracles freeing Prometheus because he cares even more about Heracles being the greatest hero ever. And you should recall from when we covered Prometheus Bound that Zeus and Prometheus are not friends. You see, Prometheus advised humans on how to offer a sacrifice. He instructed them to take the delicious bits of meat and cover them with the ox's stomach, and then to take the ox's bones and cover them with some delicious-looking fat. That's what it says. I'm not a big meat eater, so I have to take Hesiod's word that covered bones look delicious. But they do, and Zeus is given the chance to pick which sacrifice he wants, so of course he picks the bones. It's your basic don't-judge-a-book-by-its-cover lesson. And it also sets the precedent for how the ancient Greeks sacrificed to the gods, by burning bones on the altars to the gods and then eating the meat themselves. Zeus is so upset by the outcome of that first sacrifice that he takes fire away from the humans, which is sort of cutting off his nose to spite his face. There are no sacrifices, then there is no food for the gods, but he does it anyway. And Prometheus steals it back. So Zeus has Hephaestus, also called Ambidexter, mold a woman who is then dressed in gleaming robes by Athena. She is described as the mother of all women and a bane to men, or rather her descendants, which would be all women, are a bane to men. Hesiod spends more time than necessary expounding on why he thinks women are good for nothing, even if a man manages to marry one of the good ones. Again, we already talked about everything Hesiod hated back when we covered Works and Days. We see the same misogyny here that we saw in his telling of the Pandora story in that poem. Hesiod does not tell the entire Pandora myth in the Theogony. He doesn't even give us her name. Instead, Hesiod leaves the story there and goes back to finish telling us about how the Olympian gods overthrew the Titans. We'll take one final break, and when we come back, we'll cover that story and the end of the Theogony. You should recall that Uranos was not pleased when Gaia gave birth to the Hecatonchires, uh, Briarios, Katos, and Giges. And you should recall that he responded to their birth by burying them deep within, well, Gaia, which probably wasn't his best plan. Because she was able to speak to them, and given that they were insider and all, and uh, she told them to be prepared for the time that would come for them to receive their due glory. After Zeus frees his siblings from their father's stomach, a battle ensues between the new Olympian gods and the old Titan gods. And after ten years, neither side seems to be the stronger. Yes, ten years. You remember that this is a common time span in Greek mythology. They have fought for nine years, so in the tenth year. Well, to win the, to win the war, Zeus takes some nectar and ambrosia, the food and drink of the gods, and frees his uncles from where they have been imprisoned. And with their help, Zeus and his siblings are finally able to overthrow the Titans, and in a shower of thunderbolts, the old gods are thrown into Tartarus. 
Atlas is punished by being forced to hold up the sky near the house, where night and day Nix and Himera live. But only one is inside at a time. They pass each other, but never share the same space. Sleep and Death, who are brothers, also live there. This brings us to a concept that we will see a lot, especially when we get to the Odyssey. Liminality. This is the concept of the places that are between. There is life, and there is death, and then there is sleep, which is somewhere between the two. It is a liminal space. Dawn and dusk are between night and day. They are liminal times. The threshold or doorway is neither inside nor outside the house. It is another liminal space. When we consider mythology and ancient literature as telling an internal psychological story, these liminal spaces become more prominent. The relationship between sleep and death touches on the concept of liminality. As we continue to work our way through all of this ancient Greek and Roman literature, you should start noticing the presence of liminality and liminal spaces. Beyond this point is the home of Hades, and that is also where Styx, the oldest daughter of Oceanus, lives. The rest of the gods fear her and avoid this place. Even Iris, the rainbow messenger of the gods, only goes there if she absolutely must. So, the Titans are now imprisoned in Tartarus, on the other side of the chasm, which, you'll recall, is where all this started. But Zeus rewards his allies. The Hecatonchires are no longer imprisoned. The Titans who sided with the Olympians are allowed to live in peace. And Gaia gives birth to Typhius. His father is Tartarus. Typhius is bigger and stronger and uglier than any of his siblings. And another battle ensues between the Olympians and Typhius that ends with Typhius being imprisoned in Mount Etna. Hesiod finishes the Theogony by telling us about the children of the Olympians. Zeus chooses Metis as his first wife, but since there's a prophecy that any child born of Metis will be greater than its father, Zeus swallows Metis. And that is how Zeus winds up giving birth to a fully grown Athena. But Metis remains inside of his Zeus and becomes his conscience. Zeus then marries Themis. Their daughters are the Horae, or ours, Eunomia, Dike, and Irene, or Lawfulness, Justice, and Peace. And the Moray are fates, Clotho the Spinner, Lachesis the Allotter, and Atropos the Unturned. And if you're confused, yes, earlier Hesiod did tell us that Nyx is the Moray's mother. So, which legend is right? That's the fun of an oral tradition. It all depends on who is telling the story. Nothing is definitive. Next, Zeus marries Eurynome, one of the Oceanids, and their daughters are the Graces, Aglaia, Euphrosyne, and Thalia, or beauty, mirth, and good cheer. Then Zeus marries Demeter, one of his sisters, and she's the mother to Persephone, who is stolen by Hades. And we'll cover that story when we read uh, the hymn to Demeter, which is one of my favorite myths. Uh, Zeus then marries Memory, Nemosyne, and Hesiod already told us about their children, the Muses. Then Zeus marries Leto, the mother of Apollo and Artemis. And finally, Zeus marries his seventh wife, Hera, and their children are Hebe, Ares, and Ilithea. Hebe is the cupbearer of the gods, Ares is the god of war, and Ilithea is the goddess of childbirth and midwifery. After Zeus gives birth to Athena on his own, Hera is pissed and gives birth to Hephaestus on her own in a case of revenge parthenogenesis. 
Amphitrite and Poseidon have Triton, and Ares and Aphrodite are parents to Phobos and Deimos, fear and terror, but also to Harmonia, harmony. Harmonia will marry Cadmus, the founder of Thebes. And Zeus, of course, can't keep it in his pants, so he also has a relationship with Maya, through which she gives birth to Hermes, and by Semele, Dionysus is born, and by Alcmene, Heracles is born, and we know that Heracles is a favorite of Hesiod. Hephaestus marries Aglaia, one of the Graces. Uh, Dionysus marries Ariadne, the daughter of Minos, who is made immortal and ageless for her immortal husband. And of course, Hesiod can't leave us without a little bit about Heracles. Heracles will survive his many ordeals and marry Hebe, and he too will be made immortal and ageless and live happily ever after. Helios and Perseus, one of the many Oceanids, are parents to Circe and Aedes. The latter marries Idea, another Oceanid, and their daughter is Medea. Demetes has a relationship with Yasius and their son is Wealth. Cadmus and Harmonia, whose relationship Hesius already mentioned, are parents to Ino, Semele, Agawe, Atanoe, and Polydorus. And Atanoe marries Aristeus. Caloroe, the Oceanid, marries Chryseor and bears Geryanus, the strongest of all mortals, whom Heracles kills. And yes, Hesiod already mentioned that story too. Tithonus and Dawn are parents to Memnon, uh, king of the Ethiopians, and Amathion, and with Cephalus, Dawn gives birth to Theon, uh, the son of Aeson, whom you know as Jason, steals away the daughter of Aetes. And yes, that is a story we will cover in other sources. And their son, Medeos, is raised by Chiron. As far as the Nereids are concerned, Samanthe is mother to Phocus by Aeacus, and Thetis gives birth to Achilles by Peleus. We've already met them, haven't we? Aphrodite has a relationship with Anchises, and their son is Aeneas. Circe's relationship with Odysseus results in the children Agrius and Latinus, and Calypso, in her relationship with Odysseus, gives birth to Nausithoas and Nausinoas. And with that, Hesiod ends the Theogony. It stops abruptly, which is one of the reasons some scholars think, think that it is not, that it's unfinished or it's not completely the work of Hesiod. And so what do you think of Hesiod and the Theogony? As always, the link for the blog post for this episode is in the show notes. Next week, we'll cover Aristophanes' Lysistrata, Book 9 of the Iliad, and a much shorter work from Hesiod called The Shield of Heracles. Talk to you then. You can join the discussion of this and everything covered in this podcast by following the link in my show notes. And if you're enjoying what you've heard so far, please consider supporting the show with a monthly donation of your choosing, just like public radio. And please also consider giving a five-star review on your podcatcher of choice so that more people can discover the fun that is Triumvir Clio's School of Classical Civilization.